My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army. This guest gave 23 years of service, 18 of those within the Special Forces community as a Green Beret. He's completed tours to Iraq, Peru, Ecuador, Panama, Colombia, and multiple tours to Afghanistan, where he conducted village stability operations, never knowing that the allies and friends he made there would so desperately need his help after his service. He's the founder of Rooftop Leadership, co-founder of The Hero's Journey, founder of Task Force Pineapple, New York Times best-selling author, and three times TED Talk speaker. He's here to tell the amazing story of not only his career, but the almost unbearable undertaking of the evacuation of Afghanistan with the leadership that he displayed during Operation Pineapple Express in the summer of 2021. Please welcome Scott Mann. What's going on, my friend? Thanks for having me on. Good to see you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, like I said before, when we started and had to restart, uh, it's great to have you on. I think that this book needs to be in more people's hands. Of course, it's a New York Times bestseller, but I still think that it needs more people need to know this story because of everything that went into it. And as I told you before this, it's a absolutely fantastic book. Uh, I, I could not believe how much that the general population doesn't know about what happened at the end of Afghanistan. But as we always do in the beginning, let's go all the way back. Let's go to Mount Ida, Arkansas. A 14 year old you is sitting in a soda shop, sees a green beret come in. Yeah, it was a, you know, like a lot of, a lot of moments in our life. We have those, uh, those times when we, we meet somebody that just changes how we see the world and, and, and what we, what we want from the world. And that, that was definitely a moment for me. This, this guy named Mark, who was a green beret visiting our little, our little log in town there where I grew up. He, um, before I even knew what it was that he did, I knew that's what I wanted to be. just looking at the guy, the way he carried himself. And, but when he sat down to me with me and really kind of explained what green berets do and how they're different, from other elite operators that they that they work by with and through indigenous people and that they um really are as much trainers and teachers and advisors they are door kickers in many ways what they're able to do is just such a combat multiplier of taking you know uh 12 guys and 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 exponentially growing your combat power to 1200 because of the relationships you build and you know immersing in the culture and the language that just it really landed on me. It, it, and I think it's because I was a really small kid. I was a bit of a runt, uh, pretty bullied as a young kid. And everything that he was talking about, working with oppressed people and helping them stand up on their own, it just it just resonated to my core. It just everything about it. And it never changed for me. For that point on, for the rest of my life, that was what I wanted to to do. And when I retired, it was I could honestly look at my three boys and say, you know, it was even better 
than I dreamed it would be as that 14 year old kid. Were you from a military family or was it right when you saw that is when it happened? You know, I, 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 there's a lot of military folks in my family. My dad actually worked uh, for the U.S. Forest Service and fought the big wildland fires. And, and so there, there's always been a degree of civil service in my family. And a lot of my, uh, my uncles and cousins were in the military. My brother ended up serving in the, in the Airborne at the same time I was in. Um, so a lot of military service. And certainly I, I, I saw that growing up as a kid. Um, but, but I think for me, you know, it was it was just this notion of being able to do something bigger than yourself and, and being able to help people stand up on their own. Um, and just the it was a, it was an attractive idea, you know, to get out of that little town and, and be able to, like, step into something that was so much bigger than me and, and so damn scary. It was just it, it was hard. It's hard to explain, but it was just something that kind of landed on my chest cavity and I just couldn't shake it. Well, when you joined, did you have any kind of trouble when you came in? Because you said you wanted to go special forces. And we hear from a lot of guys on the show that had trouble. You know, they moved around in the services. They couldn't get exactly what they wanted. They knew that they wanted to be a commando, but they kind of had to move around. Did you have any trouble at all? Or did you get right in, get what you wanted and kind of head down that pipeline? No, that's a great, that's a great question, DJ. I, I have to say that uh, I had a lot of trouble, you know, in fact, I think I failed every military school I went to at least twice. Um, you know, I had a lot of trouble with, with that. And, and, um, I think it was because one, I, I, I wanted to be an SF guy. I think I was cut out to be an SF guy and I had the mindset and the mentality for it. I was a terrible conventional soldier. I was not good in the regular army as an officer and it, it just i just wasn't i just and it wasn't that i didn't have the self-discipline but just the the um it's a different world you know that that is required of you in the special forces community and the and the second i got into the sf world and you know i made it through selection i knew that's exactly where i needed to be and and i never had any issues after that but yes those four or five years leading up to the period of time when i had to wait for that eligibility to present itself I really struggled. I, I just struggled with um, with big army. I, I was not a good fit. And I think if I'd have had to wait another month, I probably wouldn't have made it. When you say you weren't a good fit, w what were the problems? First of all, what MOS were you in? Were you were you in 11 Bravo when you came or in, in the infantry? I, I guess you wouldn't be 11 Bravo, but in the infantry field? Take a guess. Man, I would have to say I'm thinking either – MI or uh, field artillery? Quartermaster. Really? Yeah. And not by choice. Uh, it was one, it was a year that I got commissioned. Uh, man, it was lean years. It was um, in the mid 80s. Um, no, sorry, early 90s. And it was, um, it was just, it was tough to get on active duty, period. Uh, and when I got commissioned, I was commissioned as a quartermaster and man, it was a devastating blow to me. It was, you know, the last thing in the world I wanted to do. And that's <laughs> our, it's nothing against our logistical brothers and sisters, but you're talking about a kid that from 14 years old, man, wanted to be a green beret. And all of a sudden you get commissioned as uh, a quartermaster. Like it just was not what I wanted to do. And I, I think I reflected that in my daily duties. Um, you know, I still went to ranger school as a quartermaster and made it through and, 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 you know, did a lot of the hard schools up front and struggled with them, but I made it. And then spent several years down in Panama, um, 
when you know we were still down there in the in the mid in in the uh, in the early 90s and i i was fortunate enough to to get chopped over to an sf support unit and basically my last year or two there i was able to train for selection and get mentored by some great seventh group ncos but yeah man it was it was it was a rough couple of first years in the army i just uh it just was not where i wanted to be in it and i'm being super candid uh, it was when I crawled into a bottle and my alcoholism started to uh, take root and 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 start to manifest, uh, you know, during that period of time. Well, and and I'm glad you brought that up because as we always do on the show, I want to talk about your your mental state at the beginning of your career, kind of the middle of your career, and then at the end, and then of course everything that happened after you left. Um, with that mental state being like that, you go in, you want to be special forces, you get quartermaster, which is like the exact opposite end of the spectrum. You say that you, you don't, you know, get along in big army when you start drinking, uh, is it helping you? Uh, is it, you know, pushing you along saying it, it, it'll be okay. Like that makes everything okay. Or what was it about the drinking that started you down that path? a great question i mean i you know when i look back on my drinking uh it started for me you know like i never drank in high school because we actually had a lot of alcoholism in my family so i always kind of had an aversion to it but i i started to drink a little bit in college and i was off to the races the first time i took a drink it just felt different to me and and i look back on it now with a couple of years of sobriety under my belt. And I, and I think, wow, you know, it really was just off to the races for me. But, but when I got in the army assigned to the quartermaster branch, I just used that. I think DJ, if I'm being honest, I used that as a, as an excuse to, uh, to go deeper into my substance abuse and, 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 but you know, I was 12 feet tall and bulletproof and, you know, single and could, could, I could absorb it. And so did it help me? No, it certainly didn't help me, but I think it fed my ego. And I think it fed that, that self narrative that I was building for myself, that I was going to be, you know, one of these fire breathing green berets who worked hard, partied hard. And, uh, I rolled right into selection in 95 and right into the Q course. And then ultimately to a team with that attitude, drinking that way. And, you know, um, it was a, it was a precursor to, to a pretty, a pretty, a pretty rough patch um, later on once I was a green beret. So let me ask you, you are one of those guys that has seen different parts of the army or seen two different armies is how I like yeah. to say it. You saw that pre nine 11 where I was yeah. in at that time. There's not much going on. There's some stuff going on in the world, but not really yeah. that much going on. Sure. Then you see 9-11, and we go to war for the next 20 years. I mean, when you look at it, there's no other warriors on the planet that have done it for quite that long. So let's talk about you looking at the Army, because it seems to me like it's everything the exact opposite of the way you wanted it. When you come in, you're quartermaster. You, uh, there's no really combat going on around the world. And then after 9-11 and all this takes off, is it everything that you asked for and everything that you wanted, or did you think – wow, I really got what I asked for on this one. It was a little bit of both. I, I think one segment that uh, I omitted or that I just didn't get to was, so I did the, you know, the quartermaster lieutenant thing until around 95. And then I went to selection, got on a team by, by, by mid 96, 97, I was on a team in seventh special forces group. And 
you know, by 98 deploying down to Central and South America during a very sporty time, particularly in Colombia, where I spent a lot of time and deployments that I did down to that part of the world were pretty much unilateral seventh group deployments working with like the Colombian Lanceros or the Cuestas Especiales and, 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 and doing that kind of advisory work, uh, train, advise and assist with the Colombian partner forces who were really mixing it up hard with uh, with the FARC, the guerrillas, the, the narco traffickers. So where I'm going with that is I had been given some exposure to some level of, you know, kinetic activity in a, in a pretty in a pretty uh, in, in, a, in a counter in an insurgent environment, but nothing to the scale of when 9-11 kicked off. And um, all of a sudden now we are we are a nation at war. And not only are we a nation at war, but you know, our commander in chief just said that the war is going to be fought in the shadows, uh, largely prosecuted by intelligence uh, units and special operators, and 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 that the most the bulk of America is just going to go about its business. For a Green Beret captain, or at that point, very you know, senior captain. I mean, it's kind of the words you want to hear, particularly after a catastrophic attack like that, where so many of our civilians were killed. I, I think I, I shared a sentiment with a lot of my SF brothers and SEALs and others that we were just salivating to get over there and get ourselves some payback. And and my Ranger buddy, uh, Cliff, was killed on 9-11. At the Pentagon, correct? Yep. And so I, it doubly fueled my desire to, you know, exact retribution. And, um, you know, honestly kind of forgot the buy with and through thing. Uh, it was a couple more years before I I could actually get in the fight. Um, obviously, Fifth Group led the charge on that. But by but, but then to your final point, boy, by the time that thing got under fully underway, you know, 2004, 2005, and then just on into, you know, year after year, my God, it was like, you know, one of my former commanders said, you're either, you're, there's two phases in your life as long as you're in Seventh Group. And that is you are either in Afghanistan or you are getting ready to go back. And that's your life. And that was our life. And it wasn't just my life, but it was the life of my wife and my kids as well. Let's talk about that. You got three sons and a wife. Let, let's talk about the toll that that takes on them. 20 years of war takes on them. A lot. I mean, it's honestly the reason I wrote my play. And I know we'll probably swing around to that. But, um, you know, it's it, it it it's a ton of and I didn't really if I'm being honest, DJ, I didn't realize the toll that it had taken on Monty, my wife, and my three sons until I was out because I was too busy focused on what I was doing in the fight and they were too busy trying to protect me so that I could focus on the fight and and really burying what it was like for them and the impact that it had on them and the stress and the strain and the tension so that it didn't manifest in on my shoulders when I went over there. And, and it wasn't until after I got out that I really realized the the load that my wife carried. And honestly, I, I still to this day am in awe of it. Can you talk a little more about that? Because you don't hear a lot of people talk about uh, that they did everything they can to protect you so that you could stay in the fight. That, that's one of the craziest ways I've ever heard someone say that. It's true. It's it's and I didn't I didn't realize it, I didn't appreciate it until you know, we've been married 27 years now and, um, you know, she's sitting right here with me right now. And, and like she, we've had so many conversations now after the fact we're empty nesters now. And, and, and we, we have the opportunity to, to just really talk. And 
Yeah, it, it's astounding. And it's not just Monty that did that. I mean, I, I think the preponderance of special forces and, and, and military spouses did this. And, and they, they did it in such a quiet, dignified way. Um, and they get no credit. They get no recognition. And many of them struggle mightily under the weight of that even now. You know, they, they bear a lot of scar tissue for it. And I don't know the answer to it. I just know that we we don't realize how much. And the kids are are, are similar. And, and like my wife says, they didn't get a vote. You know, Monty had a choice. She could choose to marry me or not marry me. And but stay kids, married to you. And stay married. That's exactly right. And, 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 and of course, a lot of marriages fell apart. But um, but the kids don't get a vote in that. They just think. And, and I I did not realize um, when I when I retired, uh, it was minutes before my ceremony at McDill Air Force Base here in Tampa. I'm in my class A uniform with all accoutrements on it. Uh, the, the general that's about to preside over my retirement is standing beside me. We're out in the outer area and we're walking into the room with where 300 of my friends, family, wounded teammates um, are all gathered to you know bear witness to almost 23 years of a journey. And my son comes walking out, my son Coop. He's my middle son. And at the time he was what 12 or 13 and um he he walks up to me and they've already started playing the entry song for us to walk in and uh he says hey dad um can i talk to you for a second and i said uh well cooper we're about to start the ceremony can you can you wait until afterwards and he turned to walk away and the general i could feel his eyes like piercing through me like lasers and he i turned and and he said you go talk to that boy right now We'll wait. And uh, so I grabbed Coop and we went back to the men's room because it was the only place we could go to get away from the crowd. And I said, what's up, man? And he and he just looked at me and he said, um, are you done yet? And I said, well, yeah, that's kind of what this uniform's for here today, you know? And I was kind of trying to make a joke. And he said, are you done? And I said, yeah, man, I'm done. That's it. And he just buried his head in my chest and just started sobbing. And it was the sob of a little boy that had held in more tears than any kid should ever have to hold in, you know? And I just, I don't even know how long we were in there and I didn't care, but that was the first moment literally before I even, you know, retired in those, those final moments in uniform that I realized, my God, you know, what have I asked them to do for all these years at war? You know, and, and, um, so I just kind of, it changed me for, for the rest of, you know, it's still to this day, um, I try to, I try to find ways to show them how much I appreciate what they've done and to tell their story because it's, um, they're the real heroes in the family, man. And, and I, I'm in awe of them. So does it change that day for you? Because that seems like it would be a, a happy day, but I, with the story that you just told, how can it not change into, a more, I don't know if I want to use the word regretful day, but definitely not what it was intended to be. I think what it did, that's a really beautiful question. I think what it did was it, it, it started to open the aperture and, 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 and metaphorically, you know, scales started to kind of fall off my eyes in ways that I, I didn't imagine they would. In other words, I started to think about what my 
career had been, my life was going to be going forward in a very different way. And I, and I realized that there was a whole lot about my wife and my kids that I didn't know and that, that I didn't um, have an understanding or an appreciation of. And then I started to ask myself, well, my God, like what, what do I not know about me? You know, because I've done this for so long and it, it became all of a sudden, you know, terrifying. Um, and, and sure enough, you know, my transition was terrible. It, it was, uh, it, it, it just kind of plummeted, uh, in ways that I'd never expected. And, and, uh, you know, I think that moment with Coop was just, you know, the first of many of just really looking hard at myself and, and, tr and trying to understand a man that, that I really didn't know very well and thought I had thought I had had a good understanding of myself and my identity. But when that identity went away, it revealed a whole host of things that I had either not dealt with or pushed down or just frankly had never seen. You scared of that new guy? I was terrified of that new guy. I, I, um, because, you know, just like, I guess anything else in life, when we, when we develop an identity for ourselves, and we get we get safe in that identity. You know, we can wrap ourselves up in it and cloak in that identity. And it becomes, you know, particularly when you're surrounded by teammates who share that identity as well. And you, you get into this this rhythm of uh, of warfare and this rhythm of going over to the box and back and over to the box and back. And you as as, as crazy as that sounds, you actually settle into that. And it, it becomes this, this normalized chaos. And, and, and then all of a sudden you, it just, it just stops. Like the music just stops and you look around and the guys that you ran with are still running, but they're running without you. And, and then you're in this place, you're home and you're, you know, you're, you're sitting there across from your kids, spending more time than, with them than you had in the last five years. And yeah, all of that. And, and I think for me, I had um, not taken any time to look at my purpose and, and what it was that I was supposed to do next. And I just was constantly looking over my shoulder at what I had done. And that was a terrifying reality that, that maybe I'm not relevant at 42 years old, going from the top of my game to the bottom. And um, that's a scary place to be for, you know, took a lot of pride in his relevance. The interesting part about that to me that you say that you say you're at the top of your game and I've, I've, I've heard you say in some of your talks and stuff that within two years you're at the bottom. And yeah. what's interesting to me about it is, is you've led people into battle. You've seen the world, you've done all these things and you look back and you say, well, that's what I am. That's what I've always been. Blah, blah, blah. That's my identity. Right. But it's always interesting to me to hear guys say that they were failing, that they were low, that they were this and that. When you look, there has to be that kind of catch where you also know all the good that you did in the world. And so it's hard for me to get in that mind state where you guys say, I just sank and I didn't have any other mission to do. You're looking at it. Your kids are there. Your wife is there. Now it's time to take on a new mission. So why is it so hard for a lot of guys to take that mission on? You know, that's a, that's a complex question that requires a, a bit of complexity on the answer, but then maybe it's not that complex. Maybe it's just, you know, maybe we try to take ourselves too seriously. I mean, maybe I took myself too seriously. I think at the end of the day that, that when I look back on it, that was definitely something that I did. I took myself really seriously, particularly coming out of the military and, um, 
because my wife was always rem- trying to remind me of all of the things that 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 I had done, that we had done. Look at your kids. Look at where you are. Look at what we have. Look at what we've done. We're finally here. We're at a place now where we can enjoy our time together and we can plan things together and actually go on vacation when we say we're going to go on vacation. And I couldn't see those things. Like I could not see those things. All I could see, um, you know, and, and, and granted there were some, some complications from my time in the military that I couldn't look past and, and that were starting to come home to roost that I had just pressed down. I'd not dealt with them. And, you know, but then there was also just the loss of identity and purpose. And, you know, humans, and I teach this in rooftop leadership, humans are at our core, we are meaning seeking creatures and we're meaning assigning creatures. And when we stop doing that, or we can't locate that meaning, you know, that's when things really start to come off the rails. And when you add to that devil's cocktail, you know, post-traumatic stress and survivor's guilt and all the things that you didn't deal with, it becomes a really, really nasty brew. And, and that's what happened to me. And, and, and so my ability, DJ, to see what was right in front of me, you know, uh, became minimal. I, I, could, I could barely see it. It got to a point where I couldn't see any of it. And I just thought, I am literally a burden on my family. I am a burden on them. And um, it's, uh, it's, 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 I'm not, I'm not even, I'm actually doing more harm than good being around them. You know, that was the kind of like thought process that, that, that started to take over uh, every second of my day. Well, that's one dangerous self-talk that you're telling yourself. But at one point you were getting such uh, bad anger outbursts and stuff that when you would go into a room, your family would actually leave that room. Boys would, you know, the boys would, the boys would avoid uh, being around me for, you know, whenever I would walk into a room because they didn't know what they were going to get. I mean, and you know, we were close and we're very close now, but at that point, my mood swings were, they were terrible and they just didn't know what they were going to get. And these are teenage kids. They, they've got enough trouble in their life than trying to figure out what dad am I going to get today? You know, and, and it was the same with Monty too. Like there was no consistency in what she could expect from me, you know? And so we're already going through this massive transition out of the military into the civilian world and trying to figure out what we're going to do. And then there's all this added stress. Like they've, they've, they've spent all these years trying to keep things stable so that I could come home. And then when I came home, it was a complete crap show. So, you know, it, it, it just, and I could see that in their faces. And I think that was probably the worst part. I could see it in their faces that, that, and it wasn't what I was reading. It really wasn't. But what, I, what, but what was there was just disillusionment and, and not knowing what to do. And, and, and um, that's a hard thing to see in the faces of the people you love the most, you know? Um, and uh, it just, it just continued to spiral. And, and I don't know, man, I, I, I look back on it and, and there's still times when, you know, particularly with pineapple, when Afghanistan collapsed and there, there were some, you know, kind of, re, you know, there was a, a bit of reemergence from that to some degree, some resurgence of that, but certainly not to the degree that that was after I retired. But yeah, it was a dark period. And I, and I, you know, I only learned later that a lot of buddies went through a very similar journey and um, it's a dangerous place to be, man. It's a dangerous place to be. And frankly, um, it's not, it's not, it's not a necessary part of transition and we need to get to where we're keeping our guys out of that place. We say it's not a necessary part of transition, but 
you would agree, you probably didn't know you were in that place, right? That's the problem. You don't, you think that you, what you're going through is, you know, at least again, I can only speak for myself, but I thought that I was just losing it, man. I just thought that, and it was hard to put a finger on it there that you didn't want to talk to anybody about it. Who are you going to talk to about it? Cause most of, you know, your teammates have moved on. Um, I didn't really maintain good connections with the, the military world after I got out. In fact, it was kind of the last thing I wanted to do. I was doing some contract work, but I didn't have good connections with, with, with teammates. Um, you know, and, and really the other thing too, that compounds this is when you leave the military, you're going from a status tribal like society where honor and shame of the collective, like your, your obligations are to the team, the squad, the detachment. And then you go into a, another civil society where it's a contract society where the individual is placed above all else. It's literally the antithesis of what you lived and breathed for decades. And then all of a sudden you're on a new planet where it's all about the individual and credit and achievement, not honor, you know, and, 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 and so you don't even know what it's like Ricky Bobby. You don't know what to do with your hands, man. I mean, you're like, <laughs> you're, you're just, you're trying to make sense of this new environment, but it's like, it's not even the same planet, you know? And so all of those things for me, just made it like really, really difficult to get my feet underneath me. I felt like I was kind of four feet off the ground, untethered, just kind of floating above the earth's surface everywhere I went. I just wasn't grounded. I wasn't tethered. And um, it just got worse and worse. And, I, and, and eventually it got to a point where I was just like, there's, no, there's nothing left. Like I've done it. Like this is it. Like what I did in that time as an SF dude, that's it. That's, that's, that's what my life holds. That was my dream. I did it. And, um, there's really nothing else here, man. Cause as I'm looking around here, I don't like what I see. And, um, when I say it's, it's not, it's not a necessary part of transition. I think that the more we allow our guys to isolate and gals as they come out, the more prone you are to see the world that way. And it's just with all those things going on, it's a dangerous window of time. And so one of the things we've kind of tried to do with our nonprofit is to really reduce the amount of isolation that happens with men and women coming out of the military and their families is to try to scarf them up in a big bear hug and let them know, hey, there are a whole bunch of us on this side of the pond and we love you and you're here and we're here and we're going to figure out a way through this. And even if we don't know the answers, I think that's one of the most important things we need to be doing for these 20 some thousand that come out a month. When you look back on it, how crazy does it sound to you that you you just said just now, when you got out, you'd done everything that you could possibly do. That was it. You had done all this stuff in Special Forces and you were done. Now you're a TED Talker, a New York Times bestselling author. You run charity organizations. You do all these things. You're a great father with your kids. You're a great husband with your wife. You have all these things. How crazy when you look back on that now does that sound to you? My wife and I laugh at our, we laugh so much at where we are right now. Um, I mean, don't forget, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an actor to top off my midlife crisis. It's just been an evolution of finding a way to put your purpose into the world and, and, and put your impact into the world and just kind of do what scares you. I, I finally figured out at some point after a, a very, very close call with checking out um, that that I still had, I still had a lot to offer. And, and I, I learned that through 
the art and science of storytelling of all things. Um, I, it was, uh, it was a couple of civilian mentors who, who, who found me and worked with me on, on that, that skill. And they, and these guys had, had lived some experiences in their life. One of them being an NFL football player that you could take your bad stuff and even your trauma and repurpose it into narrative that serves other people. And, I found a way to take that TNT that was in my solar plexus and put it out into the world in a constructive way through storytelling. And it changed everything for me. And, and it opened up just this whole uh, arena of crazy experiences around human connection and, 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 and building relationships and just, you know, being connected to people through, through narrative and through storytelling. And, um, it, it was, it's just been the greatest ride. It's, it, I can honestly say that uh, while I do look at myself sometimes and kind of shake my head and laugh at the, at the craziness of the adventures that we've had, um, I can say that life is actually better now than my best day when I was a Green Beret. And that's something that I'm really, really, you know, grateful for. So we've danced around it a little bit. I want to talk about that day. Um, it was an important thing. It's uh, mentioned in your TED Talks. It's mentioned in your play. Can we walk through that day? And I always ask, cause I've had a couple guys on the show that they've had those days. And I ask them, all right, let's talk about from morning until it happens. What's your mind state? What's going on? And what was the thing that flipped that switch that said, this is the time. The, um, I think the, the final thing that, that flipped that switch was I had, I had gotten to the point where, you know, Monty and I were, were so disconnected and she was walking on eggshells everywhere we went. Um, the boys were walking on eggshells and, uh, our finances had started to get strained. And I, I started this narrative in my head that, um, that I was actually causing more problems than I was solving. And we had had a, I don't remember the particulars of the argument, but we had, we had had, we had had an argument that morning and I had started to entertain well before that months before that various ideations of, of checking out and, 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 but I, you know, it was, it would come and go, you know? Um, and that particular day, I just, I dropped into a, 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 a level of darkness that I just, it's, 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 it's really hard to describe, but it just, it became just almost like black. And I, at some point midday, I just made a decision that that's what I was going to do. And, um, there were, you know, the, the, the house was empty. Monty, Monty, um, was running some errands that day. The kids were at school. And, um, and I went into, uh, my closet at, uh, in late, you know, mid afternoon and, and grabbed my 45 and, 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 and it was almost as if I was, I was, it was surreal. It was like outer body, you know, and even as I was going through the process, it, there was, there was like this workup that I was going through in my mind, trying to talk my, you know, just self-talk basically that it was what needed to happen. And, um, and, and by the time I had the pistol in my hand and, 
around chambered, you know, it was, it was, it was everything starting to speed up in my mind and, and speed up in, um, my thought process and just gearing up. And it just felt like, and that's when I, I really started to, um, I, it, I don't even say I it was getting scared. It's like at that point it, it started to, it really started to level and it, that it was, that it was going to happen because I I've, I've geared myself up many times in my life to do things that are not normal or natural. And I, and that's what that, that was that process kicking in. And, um, and one of my kids, um, came home earlier than expected. And I, and I heard him, you know, out outside my bedroom and you, uh, the, the 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 magnitude and the reality of what and i just kind of i just i kind of looked down at 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 my hand with the pistol in it and, and i and it, it it felt like it was burning my hand because i was like man what am i about to do here right now am my kid gonna find me like is that way and it was just like this wash of um of shame really you know of like what i had just done and um you know like I said in my talk, it's like what kind of what kind of dad kills himself and lets his son find him, and but none of that had had walked had gone through my mind. Not not one bit of it had gone through my mind until that moment, and the magnitude of what I was contemplating and, and about to do really hit me hard. And I very quietly put the pistol up, locked the locked the closet door, and, and came out of the came out of the room, and I never talked about it. You know, I didn't talk about it for many, many years. And it was actually um, the last TED talk I ever gave. I had already been selected to do that. And I had another talk completely lined up. And a buddy of mine, I think it was like my fourth friend in a year had killed himself. And um, I pulled money and I sighed and I said, um, I'm going to change the topic of my talk and I need to tell you something. <laughs> Cause the talk was in like three weeks. And so I sat her down and, and she had, she had no idea, you know, and then I had to tell my kids and they had no idea. So it was, um, but I just, I don't know, DJ, I got to the point where it's like, I was so, I am so tired of losing friends to suicide, to, um, alcoholism, to, to ODing, you know, and you can walk it all back to the same stuff. I just, I just, I, I, I don't care anymore about it you know i just figure it's better to talk about it and just be honest about it and lay it out there and and uh and maybe somebody hears that and locates themselves in that story you know locates themselves in that moment and um and that's um it's still you know and it's still super embarrassing and it's still super uncomfortable but uh i'd rather do that than i mean i just lost another friend it, it, it all started coming off the rails with the Afghan abandonment. And I, um, it should never have happened. You know, it should never have happened, but, but we just keep losing them. Well, I want to ask you, why do you think it is that we lose these giants that have been all over the world? Why do you think that it affects them so much? Is it, is it their time in service? Is it that feeling of abandonment? Is it TBIs? Is it medical? What What is it that is driving this so hard these days? Because it almost seems like an epidemic anymore. 
Well, I think it is. And, you know, there's recent studies out right now that they're saying that it could be instead of 22, it could actually be 44 a day. Um, and it's because um, they haven't been counting substance abuse, you know, and, and there's a, another study out that talks about the number of suicides for active duty military and post 9-11 veterans. And I think the number is something like 37,000, you know, and to me, uh, those are those are battlefield casualties. Uh, you know, a good number of them are battlefield casualties that just manifested after the guns went silent, but they're still battlefield casualties. Yes, I think certainly the, the corrosive elements of combat from traumatic brain injury to survivor's guilt to PTS all contribute to the, the rash of suicides that we have. I think that also uh, transition stress um, coming out and, 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 and not knowing how to cope and process everything that you've buried and dealing with a new family dynamic and the pressures of, of, a, of a planet that you don't know and understand. I think the absence of purpose and identity um, and, you know, there's a really great article out. I'll send you the link to it. It's called Residue, and it's by a former EMT. He's actually, I think, a friend maybe of Jeff Dardia's. But um, it's the basic notion is that, you know, operators and veterans, combat veterans have residue in their body um, from the corrosive arena. Of that residue can either harden or you can metabolize it, you know. And, and, and for some reason, there's this unfortunate narrative within our community that if you serve and sacrifice, that somehow you're supposed to suffer when you come out. And there's this narrative of suffering uh, that I just, I can't put my finger on it, but I don't agree with it. it but I certainly, I certainly fell prey to it. And um, I don't think it, I don't think it has, I know it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it really doesn't. But yet there is this just unspoken narrative that if you go into the devil's den and you operate and play that game, that you are condemned to a life of suffering after you're done. You know, and and uh, I'm of the opinion that that is simply not true. But there are not a lot of alternative narratives out there right now that 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 paint a different pathway. And so I think that's our challenge going into the future, particularly out of a 20 year war, particularly out of this abandonment of Afghanistan, where 73 percent of Afghan veterans alone feel betrayed, 67 percent feel humiliated. Uh, three out of five veterans say that um, of the 18 million veterans we have say they, they, they feel like a stranger in their own country. Um, I mean, these are all indicators, DJ, of a really systemic and troubling mental health issue with our veteran and military family community. And we're seeing the suicide numbers go through the roof. We're seeing the, the alcoholism and the substance abuse and the homelessness go through the roof. And the final thing I'll say on this is I, I, I really worry that I feel like our senior, our politicians and our senior military officers, both active duty and re retired, don't have an effing clue. They're completely tone deaf. I've actually heard senior officers who I revered as mentors look at a room of veterans and tell them to stop acting like victims. And these are men and women who served them faithfully for 20 years. Well, I, I think, didn't you hear from senior leadership that they should be over this by now? Mm-hmm. There was a, some kind of statement that said, shouldn't they be over this by now? Yeah, it was a statement of uh, introspection out, spoken out loud 
by a, a highly respected special operations general who was deeply involved in all of this. And he said, you know, I just thought they'd be over this by now. So let me ask you, here's where the here's where the disconnect is for me. You're you're a lieutenant colonel. You're in the army. So you're up there. You're not with that very senior leadership. Where do you think that disconnect is? Where do you think it goes from leadership like you had into I just need another star? I just need that contracting job when I get out where they forget about why they were there, which I hear a lot of people. It's for people. It's to help people. Where does that kind of break off? Yeah. And, you know, I want to I want to start by saying that the the generals and the admirals that I've referred to and talked about, I think, are really, really good people. You know, and I've seen a side of them that is beyond decent and compassionate and caring. But I do believe that, as you stated, there there is a pervasive culture of careerism in the senior military officer and senior NCO ranks across our military. And, and I'll be honest with you, that's why I retired in 2013 as a lieutenant colonel. I was selected for battalion command multiple times and I turned them down. And the last time I turned it down with prejudice and I, and I walked away because the village stability program that we were doing in Af- Afghanistan was abandoned uh, in uh, you know 2012. And it was really a precursor of what was coming uh, in 2021. But uh, I just between that and the uh, the way we treated Major Jim Gant and the in the way that our careerism was just it was just a, I just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So I, I retired. And uh, I, I do think for officers, it's somewhere between oh, I think it's when you put on that 06 full colonel uh, rank that that a lot of your you know your agency. It's very hard to hold on to your agency. Uh, you can do it. But the demand signal gets really intense on the, just the, the careerist uh, demands that come down on you and what you're asked to do and the positions that you're put in. It's just it's, that's just been my experience. And I, and I wish I could be more explicit than that. But it just always seems like it's that 06 level where you start to really see the emergence of, of careerism. However, I will say that the culture of careerism is just is really growing and growing and growing in our military officer ranks right now. Like I have a son in the military and, you know, he, we talk about it all the time. He's a junior officer and the, the, just the overt behavior of careerist officers is beyond the pale DJ. I just, I can't even tell you. And, and I think it's getting, it is really getting concerning. I think it's almost to the point of a national security issue. I will agree with you from a law enforcement perspective. You see it so much in law enforcement where guys are jumping through ranks too fast because they want to be a chief or they want to be a lieutenant or whatever. So they're jumping through ranks and not even learning and will do anything to achieve that next rank. Um, With the military, with law enforcement, with first responders, what can we do? to curb that because you can't really tell anyone, Hey, don't be a careerist. Hey, don't be this. Cause people are going to be what they're going to be, but how do we watch for it? And how do we maybe teach our new ones coming in that it's not worth it in the end? Well, I think it, it there's a couple of things on that. Um, I think we've, we've kind of got to get away from the zero defect 
mindset at the highest level. And this is probably, you know, my personal opinion is it is it's it's rotten to boy. And I'm, I, I don't get many Christmas cards from Fort Bragg now. I believe that it's gotten so rotten to the core that it's going to take congressional oversight to fix it. And, you know, that scares the hell out of me because yeah. you know, who's who's Congress to fix anything. But I don't think it's going to get fixed from within DOD is what I'm saying. Like if you look at the recruiting and retention issues, if you look at public trust in the military has fallen from 70 some percent to 56 percent. Um, so the military is actually losing trust in the public. And I don't see them policing themselves up. I think it's going to take some kind of civilian intervention. Um, but I do think for starters, like I know that the special operations, the U.S. Army Special Operations Command did a, um, a lessons learned report on careerism in the military was one of the major investigations that and it was in response to just all of the issues we were having with special operators committing crimes and that rash of things that were happening there during the war on terror. And what they found, these lessons learned guys, was a rampant uh, from, and these were talking to, you know, grassroots level NCOs and team guys, was a rampant display of careerism throughout the special operations senior leadership. And that report got buried. It never saw the light of day. I've seen the report myself because I got it bootlegged to me from a couple of buddies that I've got, but, but that report never saw the light of day. Um, and I think we see example after example of, uh, of suppression of, of, of what's really going on, uh, with the careerist piece and, and, and with that zero defect mindset. So it's, it's, it's become so pervasive. It'll never get fixed from the inside. It's going to require civilian intervention. I think it's so extreme that it would not, I think be a stretch to to try to get things fixed if congress were to just basically relieve uh all three stars and above and start over with one stars and two stars and bring them in interview them and then you know get a sense of where people's sensibilities are and place them in the in these these vacated positions like and i know that's an extreme statement <laughs> well but, let me ask you because you're saying a congressional oversight right doing that yeah so we want Ocasio-Cortez and people picking who is going to, do you see what I'm saying though? I mean, it, oh, I, it seems totally like there's do. no win. Well, and then, and then it does beg a fair question is like who in Congress would even be qualified <laughs> yeah. and would be trust to do that because their trust, their, the public trust that we have in Congress is even lower. So let me just step back and take a broader view at this and a bigger swing. If I haven't successfully pissed off, you know, all sitting careerists, I, I think this statement will, 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 will finalize that, um, is, you know, most social scientists agree that for a stable democracy to flourish, you, you basically have to have uh, a couple of things. You, you, you have to have a high level of social capital. You have to have citizens who trust each other, right? Um, then you have to have institutions that have the trust of the public. And then you have to have narratives and myths that the citizens believe in and tell themselves and the outside world. Like those are three standing requirements, again, that most social scientists will agree that's what you need for a stable democracy. Let's take number two, institutions that we trust and believe in, right? The only, I mean, Congress has dropped from like 73% in 1972 to, um, 
you know, single digits in many cases. The media has dropped down to the teens from the 80s. Um, you know, trust in real estate, trust in banks, all of that has, has dramatically dropped. And the only one that really held strong through the last 20 years was the military. It, it held strong as the mid-70s. It's dropped uh, down to 56%, an 11-point drop uh, just since the Afghan collapse. So my point here is that all of our institutions that we need to have trust in, we've lost trust in. And that does not bode well for a democracy. Forget about careerism in the military. Like that is going off a cliff. Now, let's look at trust in each other as citizens. Uh, in 1972, Gallup asked a question, do you trust your neighbor? One third of Americans said, I don't trust my neighbor. Today, it's two thirds and climbing. You know, uh, what narrative narratives do we have as a nation right now that we actually tell ourselves that we all agree to you know out of many come one not hardly you don't hear that anymore pretty much any national myth that bound us and unified us as a collective are gone now you have myths and narratives of in groups and out groups um it's tribal and so we've got a real dilemma on our hands dj this is uh this is a civil society dilemma that we've got and careerism in the military is a subcomponent because the institutions that we would rely on to fix it we don't trust them to do it and i think ultimately it, the only thing i can think of is it's going to come down to the citizenry putting people in office that we can trust and putting people in positions of leadership that we can trust and if we say to ourselves, well, that's impossible, the system's too broken, well, then I guess we're screwed because I can't think of anything else. When we talk about trust in the military and, and that it crumbled after Afghanistan, I want to talk to you about Afghanistan. Um, that's where you spent a lot of your time. Uh, and, and it's so weird when I hear you saying tribal, that it's tribal and we're getting all these different opinions. I can't help but think what you were doing over there with all the tribes, with all the different villages that there's a striking resemblance starting to pop its head up, civil unrest, uh, the riots, yep. things like that. So I wonder a guy like you that's been over there fights for everything to, you know, make that place run smoothly. And then you come back here and you see that it's going on here. So how do we say, that we need to be doing that all over the world when right now we can't get it together in the United States. There's a line in my play where my character, Danny Patton, he's a master sergeant in SF, um, composite fictional character based on a couple of team sergeants I lost in combat. He says to his wife, after he's just been told that his team's being pulled out of the villages and no longer working with the locals, uh, on the same day that his son has told him he wants to join the army and be like his dad. And um, Danny's kind of lost it over that. And he's arguing with his wife, Lynn, about his son joining the army. And he said, Lynn, when, um, when your dad and my dad came home from Vietnam, they threw dog crap at them at the airport. And now they come up and they thank me for my service. And then they walk straight out the front door and they bash their neighbor over the head with an ax handle. What's the point? Everything that we fought for over there so that they can just tear each other apart right here at home. 
dying for your country is one thing, and I'm fully prepared to do that. But I have no idea how I'm supposed to live for it. And, you know, that echoes Sebastian Younger's quote in Tribe, where he says the same thing, is that warriors come home after taking an oath to be prepared to die for their country, not sure how to live for it, because how do you live for a country that's tearing itself apart? You know, and, and I think that is, you're absolutely right. When I came back from my time in the military and it, and it did contribute to my dissolution here at home was that the very conditions that we had fought to keep over there were permeating and, and manifesting here at home. And that's something that I've spent the last 10 years of my professional life outside of the military at rooftop really working on is understanding okay, I did this as a Green Beret. I worked in these tribal areas. I went into these low trust areas. Clearly, the same social, social conditions are here in the United States now. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing evidence of this everywhere. Um, what about that world that I lived in could I help bring over here so that leaders might be able to navigate and build, build new social trust, new relationships, new connections, so that we can reestablish resilience in a society that is fracturing and going back to where we came, which is primal and tribal. And I think the answer is we can. I think the answer is we actually can. There's a book by um, Robert Putnam, DJ called Bubba, talks a period in the early 1900s when everything was falling apart. Crime was terrible, haves and have-nots, political immigration was off the rail, everything was falling apart. And then a couple of drunks in Akron, Ohio, who just could not get sober by any other means, looked at each other and said, let's have a meeting, you know, and little by little, Alcoholics Anonymous stood up. Same thing with the Shriners, the Rotary Club, uh, the Elks Club, the NAACP, Future Farmers of America. All of it started during the early 1900s, this 70 year run of social capital was almost completely citizen-led. Um, and it brought in and it ushered in an amount of pressure on formal leaders, institutional leaders, to get off their ass and do the right thing. Um, and it's well-documented. And, and I think there is a macro-level precedent for us to do this again. I think what you do on this podcast is another example of bottom-up leadership that can build a community, build, build a, a movement in, in the right direction. I think Pineapple, and Dunkirk and all of these other veteran-led groups are another example of that. I think, uh, and Putnam agrees with me, that we are up on the precipice of another upswing like that. Um, but it's going to take an activated citizenry who looks around and realizes nobody else is kind of like we did with Pineapple. And, um, and then you got to step into the arena and you got to lead. But I don't know what else we can do. I don't know what else. I think if we're waiting for the government to fix this, we are going to be gravely disappointed. And I'm not citing like any kind of uh, outside governmental solution. I'm saying that a government is of the people, by the people, and we should start getting back to that again. But don't you agree that these days there's so many different people screaming at the at the moon about everything that's going on it's hard to break down exactly where we need to fix it and what squeaky wheel gets the oil yeah it's well look at look at where our conversation was right we were talking careerism 
And then you ask me, well, how do we fix the careerism in the army? And, and for me to give an honest answer on that wouldn't go, well, with professional oversight to which you've countered. Yeah, but they have less trust in them than the military. So then we had to back out of that and look at, okay, well, I disagree. We need institution trust. Institutional leaders are elected by the people, right? And, and, but yet the people are so busy bashing each other with, with both circle and actual ax hand, handles that we can't get out of our own. We, we've devolved into our own uh, primal in-group, out-group behavior. You know, uh, we've we've dropped into these trance-like states of of literally tribal feud and factioning, and we're caught up in it. There's and we gotta. I think we have to and get back to a very basic approach of just getting connected to our human nature and saying, okay, we need social capital. We need relationships to move forward as a country. How do I start re-engaging in my community? How do I start re-engaging in my workplace? And being the kind of leader that fosters that bridging trust, that social capital. I mean, that's what Rooftop's all about. And I think it's going to take that kind of uh, fundamental movement and mindset from responsible leaders across all industries and walks of life. It's not I me. Mean, it's going to be it's going to be massive if we were able to pull this off. Sure, we can. I hope we can. But it's going to be really tough. Let's talk about Pineapple Express. My biggest thing that I saw about this is I definitely saw a devolving of your quote unquote character in the book as you went through. And what I mean by that is all those things that you fought for after you had the, the suicide thoughts and all that and bringing yourself back, you got enveloped into this world again. And there were numerous points in the story where you disappointed your wife, your kids, things like that. When you're trying to do this great mission and you're doing great things in the world, but we're revert, uh, reverting back to that old Scott. So can we talk about how Operation Pineapple Express happened and then how we devolved in that story? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say about it is I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do that damn thing in the first place. I never did. And and I still don't. I had no interest in going back to being, you know, representative of the United States of America to 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 recover um, people in duress. Like I walked away from that world, you know, with a pretty decent um, relationship to the community, and and um, it was time to let younger guys do that. And, and, you know, I left on my terms and, and, and certainly was not pleased with where things were going in Afghanistan. And, and so I just think it's important. I, I don't ever want anybody to think that like, that this was what I wanted to do. And I think a lot of the volunteers that were involved in this feel the same way. One of them, you know, we we're still these problems to this day in a, in a federation called moral compass, where it's like 20 groups, uh, Sacred Promise, Operation Pineapple Express, uh, and, and groups like that. And, and um, one of the, the the ladies that's in there just said, you know, we just want our lives back. You know, we just want our lives back. We put our lives on hold to to do what we felt like was the right thing. But we we can't stop now because how do you hang up the phone? You know, how do you hang up the phone on a family that has no other recourse, that is counting on you for their safe house, for their food drops? 
for their medical care because if the dad tries to get a job, they're going to friggin' kill him. You know, how do you hang up the phone on somebody who, who saved your life, who drug you out of a gunfight, you know? And, and it really, this is the part, this is why I wrote the book, DJ, because I didn't want to be involved in this. I didn't want anything to do with it because it was, it was the ending that I knew was going to happen. And a lot of us knew was going to happen, but not to this scale, not to the point that we would actually walk away on our allies, you know, and, and not at least get the most vulnerable out. So that's really what started it was one of my friends named Nizam, who was a former commando in Afghan Special Forces NCO and even a U.S. Green Beret certified kind of guy was in severe duress, was in danger of being overrun and killed. And it was just an attempt to try to save a buddy who had done a hell of a lot for me. And it just kind of spiraled from there or escalated from there. Okay. So there's my question is, at what point in your, do you not see it happening again? Or do you see it happening uh, where you're getting back into that lifestyle where you're constantly on the phone, you're constantly in mission mode, you're constantly in the red. Do you see it happening or is it a was, blur again? Yeah, it was, I was afraid that I would go back into that world again. And just, again, you know, it's not that, I mean, I was proud of what I did in that world. I, I, there was guys that did a hell of a lot more than me and deployed a lot more than me. And, and, but, but I, I was proud of my service and I was proud of my time, but I was done with it. You know what I mean? I was just done with that, with that work. And it, I spent 10 years really working and, and working on restoration and working on healing and, and putting stories together that helped other people and, and building a nonprofit and, that kind of thing. And, and the thought of getting back into, because I'll, I'll be honest with you, man, here's the thing. I knew the way this was going, that um, we were going to be forced to make decisions on people who lived and who died. And, and I, I didn't feel qualified to make those. I didn't feel like I should have to make those decisions anymore. Frankly, at 53 years old, I like, you know, I don't want to decide w which Afghan commandos, which ones die. And that's how it was going to go. Ultimately, these groups that were starting to do this, they were they were having to um, make some really crazy, terrible decisions, you know, just based on resource available resources and time and necessity. And man, I've done enough of that work to know you got 30,000 commandos and 72 hours left and the guy government's not even lifting a finger this is not going to end well but what would have ended even worse was to just sit there and pretend like it wasn't happening so it was two bad choices man yeah so it's the lesser of two evils i mean that's the yeah. best way that i can describe it but I want to go back to something you said in there. You were talking about you didn't want to make those decisions, who lived and who died before. And you've talked about in your talks before that survivor's guilt where I, I think you've lost a total of uh, 23 people. Um, and you said some of it was for uh, they followed orders that you gave, and then some of it was you didn't follow up at the end of service. So if you know that and you know the triggers – and you know all of those things, when you look at it, do you maybe approach it differently this time? 
since you know you don't want to do it, you know that it might take you down that road. Do you look at it and go, okay, I need to approach this with a different mindset? Yeah, I think what I tried to do was I just worked the edges. You know, I just tried to, like, I'm just going to help Nizam get his visa. And then, you know, this was before the collapse. I'm just going to help him get his visa. And then, you know, but I'm not going to get deeply involved in this. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get, because I just, I'm looking at this thing going, well, I don't, you know, I don't have any resources. I don't have any authority. I'm not on the ground, you know, like there's nothing really I can do for him, you know? So I'm not going to get involved to the point that I give him false hope or, you know, make some kind of promise that I can't keep and set myself up for, frankly, more guilt and, and more grief over something that I couldn't have affected in the first place. You know what I mean? And, and so I tried to be really kind of measured about it in the beginning and then as it continued to just fall apart and I, I, I just got a, a very, very up close and personal sense of his hopelessness and his helplessness, it just all of a sudden everything just kind of hung in the balance of whether he lived or died as to whether all of those years and buddies lost and time away from my family was even worth it. Like it all came down to Nizam. It all came down to what happened to him. You know, it just became very, very clear that nothing else really mattered at that point except just trying to find a way to get him out of there and and that was it just get him out just get him out and just get this you know this one person this one really good person out you know who just he just did what we asked him to do and and then some you know and and all he's done is fight and all he's done is suffer and like he's never asked anyone for anything ever, you know, and he continued to fight after we left and he's just going to be killed there on his own alone. And I just couldn't, man, I just couldn't even think about that. You know, I couldn't even, I couldn't even process that. And I, I certainly couldn't live with myself if, if that was how this ended, if, if how this ended, this war ended, even though, I'd been out of uniform for 10 years. If my final memory was Afghanistan, basically just not answering the thought for my friend, then I knew I'd never get over that. And um, what whatever else was going to happen just would happen. And and Monty and I had a long talk about it, several. I was just and getting ready to ask if you talked to Monty about yeah. it this time. Yeah, we did. And, and, you know, she just knows me really well and she knows – She's, she's been in this game so long and, and she could just, she could read it and she could read that, like, we needed to try to get him out. And, and, and so, and, you know, we were about to send Braden off to college. And, and so she just once more stepped into that, you know, and, and just absorbed all that so that um, I could focus on getting him out. And then when it quickly scaled, we, 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 what we did different this time, DJ, to your question was, we had a very deliberate conversation and we both agreed that this is what we were going to do. And, and whatever happened, happened and whatever, you know, whatever went wrong would go wrong, but we, we committed to it and we're just going to do the best we could. And it affected our business. It affected our nonprofit. It still affected our business to this day. Um, but I wouldn't change it. And I don't think she would either. You know, I, I just, Nizam's here now. We just saw him last night at my play, at my rehearsal. And, 
man, just hearing that little dude's hyena laugh and seeing his kids in school, man, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try anything. And, and, and I know Monty feels the same way, but that was, that was the only difference I think was we, when we finally got into it and we got moving on it, we just said, this is how we're going out. Like, this is how we're going to go. This is how we're going to do this. And whatever happens, we had no design on task force pineapple or any of that crap. It was just, we're just going to do the best we can, we can because our three boys are watching us right now. Our boys are watching us. This is what we've taught them to do. And we have a chance now to do what we've always talked to them about doing. And that was it. I can't help but go back to that question, though, that your son asked you. Are you done yet? Hmm. Now you're back in it 10 years later. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think my boys have developed a healthy tolerance for <laughs> my, my my search for whatever it is that I'm searching for, relevance or meaning. And maybe, unfortunately or fortunately, it has, it has actually infected them uh, in ways that I don't think they expected. But... You know, somewhere along this crazy journey, I do think that through all my flaws and mistakes, and those were the the bulk of, of what probably occupied my space, but there were some things that happened along the way that were really good and really decent and really uplifting and really um, meaningful. And, and in those moments, you know, I tried to take good notes and I tried to put together uh, frameworks and ways to come at things like, for example, storytelling. I call it the generosity of scars. And repurposing your struggles in the service of others and, and really becoming, a, you know, a master storyteller in your life, regardless of what it is that you do and, and, and bringing in both the art and the science of that and the physicality of it. And if you do that, you know, you are, you're able to lead in, in the, in the darkest of times. Like I look at pineapple, you know, we didn't do anything DJ any differently than any of these volunteer groups. I mean, if I'm being super candid here, we didn't, everybody kind of did this the same way. It was remote. It was on phones. It was leveraging relationships. But I think what pineapple did and continues to do a little differently is we told the story. We told the story in a way that was compelling and in a way that was resonant in a way that uh, Americans heard it, whether it was on CNN or Fox or read the book. And they felt like they were literally in the story. They felt like they knew Nizam. They felt like they were with him when he was going through this and in that canal. And that's the power of storytelling. And I guess what I've learned along the way through all of this craziness is that if we truly do want to contribute and, and, and serve something bigger than ourselves, we have these innate gifts in us that allow us to do that. And, and, and for, one of the big ones is storytelling and, and we can run that sucker to the end of the line. And there's no limit to just the things that we can do using that craft, whether it's plays or books or talking to our kids about alcoholism, like there's just no limit to what we can do uh, in the service of others through narrative. And um, maybe that's what I, maybe that's my new, I'm not done yet. Or are you done yet? It is. And I don't think I ever will be, I, I, at least I hope not. I hope that I'll always be, you know, on that journey of the storyteller, you know, trying to find a new way to put it into service. So when all this is going on, I want to talk about the good and the bad. Um, what are your good takeaways from, from pineapple? The, the bottom line is you saw these veterans no longer in the military or, you know, guys like Jeff who still were, 
basically, but had been, had endured so much hardship in their life voluntarily on behalf of their nation. And, and a lot of them had put it behind them. And now they were going back into the fray, except they're in their living or their breakfast table, sitting across from their child, looking at a signal with execution commandos that just happened. And they're trying to get their wives out. Um, or on the phone, um, an Afghan forces NCO and listening to them beat the entire family at a Taliban checkpoint and them saying, Steve, they're beating my wife. What should I do? You know, that's what these men and women did, man. And they, they, they stepped into that and they, and they led us and they showed us, Hey, this is what needs to happen. And they had nothing to do that with nothing, but yet, and, and America saw that. And we said, yeah, that, that's who we are, man. That's who we are. That's who I am. You know, and so to me, it's the last line I put in the I put in the book is what's your pineapple express? That was ours, you know, and none of us wanted none of us were searching for it. Most of us had run our race. We were done with that part of our life, but we were willing to run it again to some degree because it needed to be. I think that is the best part that came out of this is that I believe it was the first shot across the bow of a of a of a of a civil society upswing in said leadership that more's more's on the way more is coming and uh, i think people are getting i think people are getting tired of the polarization and the the rigid divisionism that's happening um i i just do i think i think and i and i and i believe that we're going to see more of this i hope so i hope that you know our our battle cry at rooftop is what's your pineapple express you know that's what i ask everybody because if what if we all kind of thought that way? I think it would. Uh, I think it would be pretty cool. All right, so let's talk about the converse to that. What's the worst thing, or the the bad things that came from it? Obviously, well, look. Here's one is not you know the the failure of institutional leadership has created a moral injury um, on our veteran population, and the reason that this is bad is one it's tied to national security veterans we we for because of 9-11 we saw what happened to our homeland from an attack that originated in in, in afghanistan with uh al-qaeda and there was no intelligence on the ground there was not a partner force to resist them or to fight al-qaeda and so we were attacked and then we went over fought and bled and suffered for years to put that intelligence network in place and a partner capacity of Afghan special operators that was quite good um, and was doing the bulk. And then we just walked away from it. We, we, we abandoned it. And, and as a result of that, we've, you know, does anybody think we're going to fight Russia or China or even Al Qaeda unilaterally? You know, we're going to fight with partners and we've put our partner capacity in such disarray that only thing anybody has to do when we come to them now as a young green beret and I say, hi, I'm from the U S how do you like me so far? It's Afghanistan, you know, I mean, and, and it, it, so our ability to partner is, is completely marginalized. Now you have the violent extreme over 20 violent extremist groups that are standing up in Afghanistan. They, they say that ISIS main headquarters has moved from Syria to Afghanistan. You have foreign fighters from North Africa, Southeast Asia on the same, uh, Afghan army camps in Helmand and Kandahar that we trained in just like two and operated out of two years ago. 
Um, so Al Qaeda reemerging, ISIS is reemerging. Um, and just recently we've got accurate reporting that the Russians and the Iranians are recruiting ex Afghan commandos who are, you know, basically in duress and they have their families, uh, held hostage to go fight in Ukraine, you know? And, and so at, at a national security level, we have a, a serious problem out of this. And then on the, on the moral injury front to go back what, what you and I were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast, you've got a whole generation of war fighters and gold star family members who are literally looking at each other going, what the hell was this for? And they have, they have endured a moral injury where what they believe in was completely compromised by the very leaders they trusted for two decades. And, you know, that's not good. That, 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 well, I'm, I'll finish with that can really affect veteran mental health, the suicide rate and all these other things. And uh, it seems to me that our politicians and our um, generals are just turning the page on it and pretending like it didn't happen. They're tone deaf to it. And this is where I think is the real need to stay on, on target and not give up on that. So those are the, at a high level, are the bad things um, that came out of this. And that's all covered in the epilogue of my book, too. With that, though, the scariest part of what you just said is these Afghan commandos that we have trained, that some have been through the Q course, some have been through all this kind of stuff, are now fighting with Iran. Just to clear it up. And all that stuff that you built up, all that trust now goes to Iran because they're looking at who's helping them right now. And that's a very scary prophecy for the future. Tying into that, how you said that these politicians and these generals are just turning the page. That's exactly what they're doing because there's more Ukraines out there. There's more Taiwans and Koreas and Chinas and all that kind of stuff that they're looking for in the future because I think warfare has changed at a cellular level now. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a really good point. And not forget that this isn't the first abandonment that we've done as a nation. We have a multi-generational history of systemic wholesale abandonment of our allies, going all the way back to the Montagnards in Vietnam, um, the Kurds in Syria, you know, the Iranian regime uh, under the Shah, um, the, uh, the Iraqi, uh, military and police, and then most of our Afghan partners. I mean, like it, it is a multi-generational reputation and think about it, DJ, if you and I, I mean, if you did that kind of your friends, whenever they got in trouble, where would that leave you in your social circles on a day-to-day -day basis? Not in a great place. You know, you'd be completely isolated. Oh, and, and, and if you got in trouble, who's going to come to your aid? Who are you going to count on? You know, and that's, that's what I probably worry about the most is that we have such irresponsible, both politically, diplomatically, and militarily that no one is stepping forward and saying like, Hey, we are at risk by this, not just in Afghanistan, but systemically. There's no fix for it. We, you know, there's no guarantee that my kid won't endure the same problem with a future fight stand after another catastrophic effect on the uh, attack on the homeland. Except now, instead of an alliance, when he gets sent back in, he's going to be dealing with pissed off ex commandos, right? That are that are standing alongside other groups um, prepared to deal him a nasty a nasty welcome. 
you know, and, and, and that is, that is inexcusable. Like that, that, that's, that for leaders to, to, to ignore that reality, that national security reality and the reality of what this is doing to our veteran population. These men and women have been volunteering for over a year, many of them running these volunteer groups. I've got friends that have cashed in their kids' college funds. They've cashed in their mom's 401k. Um, they're paying for food drops and safe houses. Um, hell, our pineapple manifest, we had 20 babies born after the explosion uh, by doctors that we had helped push in there through Operation Recovery. And uh, it just goes on and on and on. And and these men and women have been severely um, injured by this, you know, like they both financially, spiritually, and it just keeps going because they can't hang up the phone. They don't know how to disengage from these partners in duress because we were trained from the time we were young warriors to never leave a partner on the battlefield. And now the very leaders that held us to standard on that have moved on. And we can't, you know, and, and how we cannot see that as a nation, how we cannot see how, how certain leaders can't see that is beyond me. But I will never stop. Um, I will never stop advocating this or, or rattling cages on this because it is it is atrocious. With all you do, though, is that damage ever repaired? No, I think, you know, now, especially because so many of our partners have been executed over the winter and now we're going into another winter and we're going to lose more. And honestly, the thing that I just put an, an op-ed in Fox News about this, but is I think this administration and, and these senior officers and leaders who in, allowed this to happen, the, the real catastrophic grief and guilt that will come from this, I'm afraid, is a, an attack on the homeland that was made possible by the um, the opening of a playground in Afghanistan for terror groups on an unprecedented scale, you know, and, and what are we going to say to ourselves as leaders? I mean, one 9-11 is bad enough with all that led up to that and all the failures, but another attack like that on the homeland because we walked away from a 20-year effort to God. Um, I, 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 I don't know, man. It's, um, it's surprising to me that more leaders aren't switching on this, especially with the reporting that's coming out of there right now. It's really weird. It really is. So I want to talk about something that you say in the book. Um, and I want to talk about one of the, the leaders that you're talking about in it. And you talk about general Scott Miller and Chris Donahue. Uh, a couple times in the book. But at the end in your epilogue that we were talking about, you said Major General Donahue further stated that the calls and emails from Matt Coburn were wildly unhelpful, hence his decision to push him off to one of his colonels. That is one of the craziest things you wrote in the book, and you wrote a lot of crazy stuff in the book, that a general would actually come out and say, these guys are trying to help people. The Operation Harriet, the Pineapple Express, it's working, but you were wildly unhelpful, and that's why he decided to pawn you off on someone else. You got to talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I, yeah, I, so I, I want to add a little context that, it, first of all, in fairness to Major General Donahue, or Lieutenant General Donahue now, I think, um, you know, he was the only guy who granted an interview to me and sat down with me and talked to me. Okay. And really, was very, he was very candid. 
And I, 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 I asked him about all of that because, you know, and one of the things that he did was he, he rolled his situation map out for me on, uh, off of at Kabul international airport. And he showed me the number of basically mission essential tasks that he was responsible for as the Neo task force commander, just getting on the ground and all of that chaos with his small band of paratroopers and a few others. And it was something like seven <laughs> mission essential tasks that he was given. You know, I mean, it was just this insane uh, amount of responsibility that, that his little group had and that frankly he had. And then, and then, and he wasn't making excuses either. And I, and I would tell you if he was, he was just showing me like that I was responsible for. And then he showed me his, his battle rhythm, like a day in the life of, of uh, general Donahue and brother, it was insane. Like, I mean, I don't know how he even did it, but, but, but the guy was engaging, you know, 18, 19 hours a day, nonstop including with the Taliban. And uh, I'll tell you right now, I don't think I could have done a, a lot of the stuff that he did, you know, if I'm being honest. It, he, he um, and a lot of people speak very highly of him from guys that were on the ground. A lot of people refer to him as a soldier, soldier. And so what I, what I, what I want to be clear on is that from our vantage point in various places around the United States working, on we weren't on the ground we weren't enduring what he and his men were enduring but we we did have a workable solution as you stated that how you proposition to general donahue and and the others on the perimeter was that we knew who many of these at-risk commandos and special operators were we knew where they were and they trusted us to move them and present them responsibly to these folks on the gate who were otherwise looking at thousands of faces that they didn't know. And that was it. That's it in a nutshell. And, and so we were able to convey that DJ to certain people like, um, Jesse and John that, you know, the company commander and first sergeant at the four foot hole in the fence. Um, we were not able to convey that to, to general Donahue. All I can say is that, he was on the ground and he was task saturated. And I believe that when Matt presented him with very viable options to move large numbers of Afghan soft through the wire, he was unable to see the value proposition that I just gave to you within a cloud of other calls that he was getting. Now I'm not going to judge it. I'm just saying that's what happened. And, and he, and so for that reason, and Matt was adamant. Matt was passionate. Matt was the last siege of of commander. These were his guys. And, and, and so he was very, very, you know, elevated as he had these conversations. And, and I think at some point the general just said, you know what, I'm going to let you deal with one of my 06s. I'm not doing this. And, and I wanted to get that story from Jenna Donahue. I wanted to hear it from him. And that was why I did it. Um, again, did they miss an opportunity? to pull in large number absolutely and i will never stop saying that but general donahue was really the only guy that sat down with me and explained it and um i i i, I can't say i was satisfied with the explanation because i feel like we we really missed an opportunity to collaborate but i also know he was handed a crap sandwich and was doing the best job he could and it the unfortunate reality dj is that two very valiant efforts were underway that could have been super collaborative and it didn't happen. 
So with all of this, with Pineapple Express, with your part being done, I want to I want to tell people how much they need to hear this book because uh, one, I have both the regular version of it and I have the audio version of it. Um, it's narrated by you um, yeah. in the book and it's absolutely fantastic. Now, the reason I bring that up, the audio, because I want to talk about something that you had mentioned before, when people listen autobiographically to things, um, is that why you narrated the audio book was to take that personal approach to it? Yeah, because I want people to, because I don't feel like most folks, li you know, listening and watching your podcast, I don't feel like they got the straight story on what happened. I don't, I don't think they got to hear uh, the stories of the Afghan commandos and special forces who risked everything and the veterans who stood at their shoulder at a street level, you know, where you and I live and, and, and really went through this crucible of, of friendship and sacrifice. I asked two basic questions when I wrote this book, when I interviewed dozens and dozens of Afghans and special operators from our community, what does a promise mean to you and how far would you go to honor it? Those were the two questions that guided this book. And as I got these very, very emotionally compelling answers, it just started to, to land on me that, man, the storytelling component here is what's missing because Americans resonated with this. They loved this story because it, it connected with them. It connected with what their beliefs are and what they were, they were brought up to, to know is right and true. And so I just thought, man, if we can tell the story from the, the point of view of the men and women who lived it, then that gives the reader, the listener, the opportunity to, to go into that trance-like state that we all do when good stories are told. And we start to listen. We start to process our own life in that narrative. We start to process our, our own ex lived, and it starts to become our own lived experience. And we, we get to know Nizam, and we get to know Steve and, and, and John and Jesse. And, you know, when, when being able to read it, DJ, and being able to occupy the voice of, you know, all of these characters, I think you're, I think a lot of people will, will connect with this thing at a, at a deep visceral level. And, um, and from their care about this problem much more than they did before, not because they, they're, you know, they're callous, but because they never got to hear the story. Well, and you know, when I look at it and you hear this story, there's so many layers to it. Like you said, down to the street level where we live at, there's so many levels to it that, that weren't heard about. We saw the pictures of the runways with people hanging on planes. We saw the explosion. We, we saw those big ticket items that happened, those big news worthy items uh, but you don't hear about yeah. everything that was going on in the background. And just to hear about the the approach that they took and some of the guys in this book, how many times they had to keep going back there in order to get to get pulled into the base. Um, it, it, it's absolutely unbelievable. This is, I told you, this is one of the most phenomenal biographical books that I've read in a long time. Uh, I absolutely loved it. And more people need to just to know, not necessarily just the overall story to know what goes on with these people, how this affects them during it and after it's over. 
It will really make you – I appreciate that, man. Thank you very, very much. And it was a gutting experience. Right? It, it, I've written a few books in my life, and this one really gutted me, mainly because of the interviews and just going back. You know, one, uttered in the third person, which um, some folks initially were a little worried about because normally you would write this as a memoir. I wanted to write it in the third person person because I felt like the real heroes in this story, the protagonists in this story were the Afghans and their partners, their shepherds. And so I wanted to be able to do that as a storyteller, you know, and so I even talk about myself in the third person, which is kind of weird when you're telling a story, but, but I think it works for this. And I think it allows the reader to just pick it up and just blaze through it because it, it does, if you've seen the, the movie Dunkirk, the, the remake, it kind of reads like that. Um, it kind of reads in a filmic kind of way because honestly, DJ, that's the way the stories were recounted to me. When I started the interview process for this book, I didn't know who was going to be in it and who wasn't because it was so chaotic during those several days of pineapple, even though I was, you know, the, you know, quote unquote leader of it. Uh, we had close to 150 shepherds and thousands of Afghans on our manifest. And I didn't know a lot of them. And the ones that even that I did know, I didn't realize they were in pineapple until so going through those interviews, man, and, and hearing the Afghans tell their story and the shepherds, it, it was very clear to me that it just, I needed to just get out of the way and just let those stories breathe. And, and I hope that, that I accomplished that. Well, that was kind of my next question. Kind of the last question to the book was you write in there that this is not your story. Uh, you said that you just had a damn good seat for it. Um, don't you think once again, cause we've talked about this in your career. Don't you think you've earned that? This kind of is your story. It, it wouldn't be out there to the people nah. if you hadn't done it. Well, you know, that's the thing about being a storyteller that I love is because, you know, how many times you're a veteran and, and, you know, we all have an aversion to not all of us, but a lot of us have an aversion to talking about ourselves or being perceived as talking about ourselves. And what I, and that's a real dilemma for transitioning veterans and transitioning law enforcement and transitioning first responders is because a guy like you has so much to offer in lived experience through both scars and miles traveled. Like, well, I don't want to make it about me in the civilian world because you don't want to be perceived as you. And for me, I had this fear that there would be with the book going on media and that kind of trying to make it about me or, or this is, hey, this one time at band camp, here's how I led Operation Pineapple. And because it's just not the way it went down. It's just not the way it went down. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to um, help get Nazam out and I was fortunate enough to use a lot of building and interpersonal skills, pre-existing connections to, to put together a group of guys, right? But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't dow those Afghans with the courage that they demonstrated in, in, in the face of completely inhumanity. Got the opportunity. My God just gave me the opportunity to bear witness to that and take notes, you know, and, and, and be a cheerleader and, and tell they were doing really, and, you know, like just hang in there a little bit longer. And, and we're going to keep trying, like, I, you know, to further beyond that as a, for me would be untrue. The cool thing is with storytelling is that you can assume 
a role in the story and be the storyteller um, and, and, and really shine a light on the, the broader, more beautiful elements of the story. And I think that where I did things, I tried to be honest and say that, but where I screwed up, I tried to do that too. But more importantly, I tried to put myself in the proper context of this story, which was, yes, I played this role and I was a leader, but, you know, Operation Harriet, for example, was the brainchild of a former Green Beret turned Syracuse school teacher who stepped into the arena once again and the risk of his marriage and his own mental health to bring to life a plan from, you know, a former slave who was iconic and did a, a similar thing. You got to give that credit to the, to the person that did that act. And that's what was so great about being able to write this book was to be able to shine a light on those amazing human beings and, um, and tell their story, man. It's just, uh, and, and I trust me, I, I, that's about the most humbling thing that's ever happened to me. Let's talk about last out. Now I know that you got originally told, write a five minute, one person play. You did it. Um, you said that there was thunderous applause, but all you remember is the tears from your wife and sons. So let's talk about that. Then let's talk about your midlife crisis and two years and 59 revisions and 162 acting classes later, how you came up with this last out. Following the thread of the storytelling and, 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 and how that became for me, it just became like my, my go-to thing, DJ, as I evolved as a human after my time in service, what I found consistently I could rely on was this, this craft of storytelling and whether that was speaking from the stage about NCOs that I had served with that taught me certain lessons on rapport building and how to, how to establish trust, or whether it was teaching a workshop to, you know, commercial bankers on how to establish rapport in a client facing environment that was really tough. It was always storytelling. I kept coming back to that. And so I just started digging into it hard, man. I, I just fell in love with it. Um, I saw how it saved my life and it was allowing me to really be a bridge on this civil military gap. And so Monty and I founded this nonprofit called The Hero's Journey, um, where we, we, we help warriors and family members and first responders find their voice and tell their story in transition. So that became our nonprofit. And I started to, to run workshops there as well. And the reason I did that, man, was because I was studying under some great storytellers. Um, I was studying under Pat Quinn, Bo Eason, Carl Bury, Larry Moss. And, and, and I know these names probably don't mean much to you, but they are in the storytelling world. They're iconic. And, and I was really studying the craft, the art, the science in a big way. And so I felt like I could pour that in um, veterans. And it was in that process that one of my mentors, Bo Eason, a former NFL football player turned playwright who had written a play called Run of the Litter about him becoming a pro football player uh, from a scrawny run of a kid on a farm in California that he said, Scott, you need to write a play. You need to write a play and it, it'll heal you. It will help you uh, just come to terms with a lot of the stuff in your life. And even if, if it never sees the light of day, um, just doing it will, will, will increase your skills as a storyteller. And so that's what I did. Um, that little scene that we talked about, that you talked about, that I did at a community theater. Um, it was about a true event, about a silly band that my, my son gave me called the Magic Silly Band. And 
you know, I told the story in the theater as the silly band and, and how I, you know, kept my owner safe and how senior officers had tried to get me to take it off and I wouldn't, he wouldn't take it off. And, um, it, it really kind of brought the house down in that little storytelling event. And everybody was saying that is a play. And so I just kept writing, kept writing. I wrote for years. I think Monty and I figured up this morning when we were talking, we've been at this for five years now. Um, which I'll pause there for a second and have it make a transition comment to any of my brothers and sisters in transition, whether you're starting a business, becoming a speaker, starting a nonprofit, plan on a five to ten year plan, <laughs> you know, uh, if it if it matters. Believe uh, how long have you, how long have you been working on podcast? Probably about a year and a half, two years. And, and, and you're probably just now starting to feel like you got your feet underneath you, like you're starting to kind of figure it out. A little bit. I, I'm glad I have six more years until I retire. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. But so, but you know, it started to really come together, I guess. And, um, I'm not sure exactly at what point it was DJ, but, but I told mommy, I said, I think I want to act in this thing. And <laughs> she was like, okay. Um, huh. You know, and, and as she politely and so, hid her laughter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she, was, she was super cool about it. And I, you know, what I did was I, uh, Bo, who's my mentor and, and, a, you know, a, 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 a trained actor, former football player. He said, okay, I'm going to get you going. He, so he got me names up in New York city and I just quietly flew to New York uh, a couple times a month. And I trained in these workshops with Larry Moss and Carl Bury and others in, 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 in the craft of acting. And they saw the play they, that I was writing and they really liked it. And they thought this is kind of novel to take this, you know, this old fart veteran and see if we can turn him into an actor. And so I think it became kind of a little project for them too, you know, but at the end of the day, we did that. We did the world premiere on veterans day, 2018, about 300 people showed up at the, the Tampa Marriott to bear witness to my midlife crisis. And um, it was a cast of veterans and military family members. And man, we brought the house down. Like, I think people thought it was going to be kind of an after school theater. Oh, look at the cute little veterans doing a play. <laughs> but, but, you know, we, we all trained so hard. And then we ended up taking it on tour to 16 cities, 250 PTS interventions in the lobbies, um 75 gold star families performed for it's now a film on amazon prime and most recently i think i can say this now um uh it's going back on tour on the heels of the afghan collapse officially sponsored by the gary sinise foundation i i did see something about that on the on the website um so with all of this stuff you're doing um i i asked you before when you look back did you ever think this was possible but we have to talk about so many other of the organizations, Rooftop Leadership, The Hero's Journey, Operation Pineapple Express Relief. You're doing all these things. Is it ever going to be enough? Are you ever going to be done? I don't think so, man. I, you know, I don't think so. We interviewed this guy, George, uh, who's a, he's a Green Beret, former Green Beret, and he's helping to get refugees out and he resettles them on farmland in rural North Carolina outside of Fort Bragg. And the thing about George is that surprises people is he's in his eighties and he's a Vietnam NCO Green Beret. And the refugees that he's pulling out are Montagnards. And um, he's been doing it for over 40 years and um, he's still going. And he's, and I asked, we asked him, when are you going to stop? He said, when I'm dead, you know, and, and I just think that, 
for those of us, and I suspect most people involved in your podcast feel this way, for those of us who are trying to play a bigger game and we're trying to contribute to something bigger than ourselves and we're not really sure how to do it, and, and there's a lot about that that scares us, and, and you know, um, I've found that that's the good stuff in life, man. That's the stuff that actually makes it worth getting up in the morning. That's the stuff that makes you feel alive. That stuff that when at the end of your life, you can take a deep breath, you know, for that last breath. And by, by really just pursuing the things that scare you, you know, the things that are going to, that are going to make a difference, but they're scary. They, we don't know the answers, you know, the definition of vulnerability that I learned in acting and I really love it is not knowing what's going to happen next and being okay with it and taking action anyway. You know, that's vulnerability. And and I believe it's when we're most alive. I believe it's when we do our most good. You know, when pineapple happened, dude, I didn't have a clue what we needed to do. I was out over my skis and 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 then I did, you know, good things. But it's also when I felt alive. It's also when I felt most connected. And it, it, it's, it's what keeps me going. And I think for the times that we live in right now, um, the, what you asked me about being done, I equate that is, you know, are you ever going, are you ever going to, um, not have purpose or not have meaning? And I don't think, I hope that never happens to me. And when it does happen, I hope it's time for me to check out and leave this world because as long as I've got purpose and meaning and I can find it, you know, I want to try to pursue it with as, with as much aggression and audacity as I can. I think all I meant was just relax. Uh, <laughs> are you ever going to relax i think that's more of where it yeah. was going no to. i yeah no i appreciate that I, you know monty and i had a conversation this morning about that you know, we were sitting outside and just talking about how hard we're running um and you know i'm doing this play at 54 and i don't really think i can do it much longer it's a very physically demanding play um, our kids are grown now and so yeah we're definitely going to start to settle into i i love teaching and speaking and and training other people in storytelling like that's my that's my favorite thing to do with small groups and one-on-one -on -one. and you know i love the solitude of the mountains and just kind of reconnect life and so i mean it's definitely i won't say it's winding down dj but i'm definitely redefining what my tempo looks like and i'm definitely you know um not looking to grind as hard as i've grinded these last couple of years pineapple added a lot to that and the play came back the afghan collapse so i think it'll start to take a, a, another another angle in a, in a year or two where it's more intentional it's it's a bit more deliberate and it's a bit um more um judicious on like the kind of things that i take on but um it's been a good, good ride man you know and i and i'm really i'm really grateful that i've been able to do all of these crazy things so let's talk about where everyone can find you, where you're available at, and what each of those things do. <laughs> so I think the easiest thing is just go to scottman.com. You know, that that's that's the uh, kind of the, the place where my whole body of work lives. And when you go there, my podcast is there. And, and what I talk about on that podcast is really what you and I were talking about earlier about this um activated citizenry leading their communities and leading their own movements. And, you know, what does it take to do that? So I have a podcast where we talk about how do you lead that way? How do you lead people who don't want to follow? How do you create a movement 
using connection and interpersonal skills and storytelling. So that's there. Um, there's also um, my rooftop leadership, the link to which is our leadership company. Our goal is 10 million rooftop leaders in 10 years, uh, basically inspired and trained in human connection skills. Um, the Hero's Journey link is there. Our nonprofit, we run all kinds of free workshops for veterans on storytelling to include a digital workshop that we're putting together right now. The link to the play is there. Last out, Elegy of a Green Beret. And we're going on tour. We have our first show in Tampa, and then we're in D.C. in January. We're in Arizona in February, uh, Alabama in March, and we do about a, a, a city per month for a, a year. And if you go to lastoutplay.com or, again, just go to scottman.com, you'll see the play there. Just click it and check it out. There's some really cool stuff on the play. Um, that There's videos and news broadcasts. And then uh, Operation Pineapple Express Relief is the relief fund. If you read Pineapple and you really get a soft spot for the, the Afghans in that uh, who are still stuck over there, that's a place that Monty and I just recently started that you can go there and donate. And we use those funds to help our pineapple passengers that haven't made it out yet or are here in the States uh, having a rough time. And then I think the final thing is my, uh, my TED Talks are there on scottman.com. Uh, there's three of them. They're pretty cool. Uh, one of them, the generosity of scars. I talk about my mental health crisis and how storytelling saved me and it's got over a million views. It's done really well. Um, uh, but that's it. Yeah. That's uh, all of my stuff's right there at scottman.com. Anywhere people can find you on social media. Uh, I'm terrible about my handles. Um, so I I'm definitely on LinkedIn. You can search me out there. Um, and I am on, 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 I do a lot on LinkedIn actually, but I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and it's all under the Scott man handle. Well, I, I got to tell you, Scott, I'm so happy that you came on here and that I got to talk to you about this. Once again, like I said, this amazing, amazing book that you've written and everything that you've done after your service, it, it uh, is just incredible. And you should be very proud of the stuff that you have done. And, and I'm so honored that you came on the show. Guys, if you want more of me, you know where you can find me. You can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. But the one-stop shop for you is going to be dtdpodcast.net. That's the audio and video. Scott's going to have his own page there. It's going to have pictures. It's going to have things from the book going to have audio and video of this conversation and everywhere that you can find him on links built right into his page don't forget to stop by policecoffee.com now i tell you about them every week they're an officer-owned business they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available every batch is roasted by people who knows what it means to stay vigilant their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. And guess what, guys? It's fall. Pumpkin spice is out there. And guess who has it? Policecoffee.com. Their coffee is some of the best you'll find, and it also serves an important cause, giving back to the community. 50% of their profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. So make sure you stop by Policecoffee.com. Make your order. Put in the code DJK10 for 10% off your order. Guys, that's going to be the conversation for this week. Make sure you go check out this book. It is absolutely fantastic. Operation Pineapple Express by Lieutenant Colonel Retired Scott Mann. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. That's Scott. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.